Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Psalm 20, the 20th Psalm. This morning, we will pause our study of Ephesians. Our church has had a difficult last week or so, and with the tragic loss of Wendell, one of our elders, beloved brother, uh, my own family, as I've had to go through COVID, and I found my heart going to the Psalms as it often does in difficult times. And so um, I thought we'd pause our study of Ephesians and find comfort in God's Word, strengthen His Word. In Psalm 20, God willing, we'll return to Ephesians next week. So Psalm 20, um, I'd like to begin our time by reading Psalm 20 in its entirety. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. A Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Salah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the King. May he answer us when we call to the choir master. O Lord God, we pray that you would save, that you would work your salvation among us, sustain us, strengthen us, comfort us, give us strength. Give us eyes to see in your word what you would have for us that we might trust in you and in your name in the day of trouble. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 20 is referred to as a royal psalm, kingly psalm. It's a psalm of David. Um, The the title tells us that. It's given to the choir master for corporate use. And as far as we can tell, it was composed at a time when Israel was about to enter into some battle. It's a battle hymn, or battle psalm in preparation. Um, and as we study this psalm, and, and the flow of it, if you look at the movement, in the first five verses are taken up by petitions. Now the ESV makes that clear with the word may. May the Lord answer you. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send. May he remember. May he grant. May we shout. May the Lord fulfill. So the first five verses are the petitions. Corporate prayers, I believe, for the king. In fact, that's your first blank. Earnest prayer for the king. And then the we's change to a singular voice in verse 6. Now I know. And there's a response. And then the psalm closes in verse 9 again with a reiteration of the, of the theme of prayer. So there's going to be prayers, a response of faith, And then there's going to be a final petition to the Lord. 
And I think it's instructive for us. And when we're dealing with the Psalms, and particularly with Davidic Psalms, we've got to wrestle with the question of application. Because contrary to many um, Sunday school lessons, you and I are not David. Um, and so we can't simply take events from David's life and apply them to our life. And yet, by giving this psalm to Israel's corporate um, prayer book, David is setting an example for believers. As we think through this and the specific situation that David's facing as he's getting the army, the people of Israel, to pray for him as, as they face some military conflict, I think there is something for us to learn about corporate prayer for each other. Is not David a model for believers? And there's also clear messianic implications. I'll look at those more towards the end of our time. So let's dive in at these petitions. Earnest prayer for the king. Earnest prayer for the king. And the title doesn't let us know what specific conflict this is regarding. But it's clear the people and the king view themselves in dire conditions. They're up against difficult odds. And so what do they do? They call on the name of the Lord. What do the people do? They lift up prayers for David, for their king. And those come in a series of paired petitions. You see the pairings, two ways of saying something similar. So in verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Two ways I think of saying the same thing. Verse 2, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Again, not really naming two separate things, but naming one thing two ways. Verse 3, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor all your burnt sacrifices. Verse 4, may he grant you the desire of your heart and fulfill your plans. So we get these paired requests, petitions. So we're going to look at them in four points. And the first petition, prayer for the Lord's protection. Prayer for the Lord's protection. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Now, that's the setting where we get some great calamity. This is a day in Israel's history that can be referred to as the day of trouble. We, we don't know the specific event. David fought many military campaigns. He was a man of war and battle. And yet, given all of his conflicts, this commemorates a day of trouble. We face days of trouble as well. And we're not David. We're not the head of Israel. But as David sets a model here, what do you do when you encounter a day of trouble? You pray. You get others to pray for you as well. Israel's king gets the nation praying for him in his day of trouble. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So what is the day of trouble? Here in this first context is some great battle. It's a great battle. In fact, if you keep your finger here, turn to Second Chronicles. I think the pattern set in Psalm 20 gets used later in Israel's history. We see something similar. A looming battle. And Jehoshaphat prays. The people pray for him. Let's read a few verses in Second Chronicles. The type of situation David could be facing. Now, this is obviously later in Israel's history, but... Many of the themes are the same. Second Chronicles 20, After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some Muonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom. 
from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazaron Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah, and Judah assembled to keep to seek help from the Lord, and all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, and your hands are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built for you in it sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house, before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came into the land of Egypt, came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So possibly even taking their cues from Psalm 20. And here's, a, here's an example of the type of situation Israel may have been facing in David's day. And so their concern is for a military battle. But note what they set their hope in. Note what they set their, set their hope in back in, in chapter, verse, chapter 20, Psalm 20. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And their hope is in the name of the God of Jacob. And what does that mean? It's, it's not a magic formula or talisman. There's not special power in the vocalization of the name of God. Rather, the name of God, and here's your blank, represents God's character. We can even have that expression, do you have a good name? What are you known for? Who are you? And when God revealed himself, most notably in Exodus, in two phases, first we get his short name in Exodus 3 where Moses encountered the burning bush. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, who, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God's going to tell Moses his name. This is sort of the short version, but it again tells us about his character. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your father, I am has sent me to you. Sorry. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So, the Lord, Yahweh, as we pronounce it, identifies God as the self-existent one, the God who does not derive from anyone, but he is, he is being. And that's his short name, if you will, the God who is self-existent, the God who is, the God who is living. But then more notably in Exodus 34, remember after the uh, golden calf incident, Moses climbs up on the mountain and he intercedes for the people. Exodus 34, 5 to 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, and I call this sort of the longer version of God's name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So when the prayer is made, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you, I would take that to mean something like the character of the God who is self-existent, who abounds in steadfast love and mercy, may he protect you. That's, that's, that's what they're putting their trust in. They're not praying for really big spears. They're not praying for the unstoppable military strategy. Their hope is in protection from God himself, the name of the God of Jacob. That phrase, the God of Jacob, the name of God, or the God of Jacob, occurs 18 times in the Bible, 12 of them in the Psalms. Interestingly, if you listen to the the final words of, of David in 2 Samuel 23, he's identified this way. These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So petition one is a prayer for protection. Literally, when it says in the ESV, protect you, it's to set you on high. The picture of a safe, secure place. May God put you in a safe and secure place in the danger. May he protect you. May his name protect you. So the first petition is basically, don't let the king die in this battle. Protect him. Make him secure. And may that protection come from God and his character. Second petition, for the Lord's deliverance for the Lord's deliverance. So if the first petition is don't let harm come to him, now we're looking for even something more than simply not perishing, but maybe prevailing. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. And again, notice the source of the help. It's coming from God. Now, the mention of the sanctuary, the ark was probably at the house of Obed-Edom, And so there's a sanctuary set up where the ark is, where the tent is, the temple will be built later, but Mount Zion's already been identified as the place. And so the picture is where God dwells, where God is, may help come from there. Again, notice the focus. God, His name, His dwelling place. Their eyes are not scattering about looking for help from other sources. They need deliverance from the Lord, from where He is and not from man. Let me get to the third petition. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. What's going on here? Well, I think the thought is this. David is a sinful man. And we know from reading the the history of Israel, sometimes due to David's own sin or the people's sin, judgment came upon Israel. The people would fail in battle. Think of the failure at Ai right after Jericho. And I think the people are saying something like this. May, the, may, the, may David's sacrifices, now he's offering them for himself, for his own sins, for the sins of the people. May they be remembered. May there be nothing compromising fellowship between the Lord's anointed and the Lord. The reference here to two types of sacrifices. May you remember your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. The offerings, I think, speak to the, uh, the fellowship In in Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we read, when anyone brings a grain offering 
As an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be with fine flour. He shall pour the oil on it and the frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and the oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the burnt offering, now these, these are sin offerings. Leviticus chapter 1. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So the prayer is, Lord, forgive his sins. Don't let them come into view. Don't let them factor in. As we're praying for this deliverance, as we're praying for your grace, as we're praying for your help, let him be in full fellowship with you. Full fellowship, complete forgiveness. And so they're praying theologically. It's not simply help David because he's a good guy. They know what's the one thing that can stop this help coming. It's not the enemy army. It's David's own sin. David's own sin, his own faithlessness is the one thing that could prevent, create a rift between him and the Lord and would potentially invite judgment rather than help. And so they're praying for help according to God's name and His character. They're praying for a deliverance that comes from the Lord, not from man. They're praying for David's own walk with the Lord, his fellowship with the Lord, the Lord's favor upon him. And then and only then do they get to the real matter in verse 4 and 5. May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. In the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now notice that now here at least three times. May He grant your heart's desire, fulfill your plans, fulfill all your petitions. So this is a prayer for the Lord's salvation. Prayer for the Lord's salvation. We even see that word in verse 5. So what is the desire of David's heart here? What are his plans? What are his petitions? Well, clearly for victory for this particular battle. They want to win and not lose. And we see that in the language of setting up banners. This is military language. They want to triumph. Not only do they not want David to die, and they want the Lord to give help. Here, the culmination of this is that through the Lord's help and the Lord's protection and the Lord's favor, they might actually be triumphant. And so they pray for victory. And again, they, they know where this victory comes from. It comes not from the power of their own hand. It comes not from their own wisdom, but it comes from the Lord. Listen to 2 Samuel 8, verse 6. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Where does David's victory come from? His power, his might? No, it's from the Lord. We also know in Psalm 144, verse 10, who gives victory to kings? Who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword? It's the Lord. So there's, there's no confusion on the prayer of the people. They need help. They need God to answer in the day of trouble. They need David to be protected. Only the Lord can do that. They need the deliverance and the help of the Lord that comes from him. David will need to have the Lord's favor. He'll need to have no sin compromising his fellowship with God. And then in that context, they say, Lord, give him the desire of his heart. He desires victory. Give it to him. May we um, praise and exult in the Lord. And again, notice the 
the theological reasoning. They, they know the character of God. This is the constant pattern of God. He gives the blessing, we give the praise. They want the victory, and they want the victory so they can move on to the praise. Listen to Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. That, that's, that's the way the exchange works. The Lord gives the grace. The Lord gives the help. We praise Him in response. And they understand that. Lord, we want to celebrate that worship service. And we lift up our banners in your name and shout for joy over your salvation. So that's, that's their prayers for the king. Whether it's the army singing, whether it's the nation singing, I don't know. But they're theological. They, they know the character of God. They know their needs. They're praying for help according to God's character. They're praying for help from His habitation. They recognize the one thing as they're praying for their king that could conflict with their desire would be His own potential sins. So saying, Lord, remember His offerings and His sacrifices, His burnt offerings. And then, may He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Maybe shout for joy over your salvation in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. And so in our, even in our own life, as we're praying for each other, we should pray biblically. We, we pray for each other, but are we praying these types of prayers even for each other? Lord, as you're praying for a friend, Lord, let them keep a short account with sin. Let their fellowship not be hindered with you. Lord God, according to your character and your name, we want to pray for our friends because we care for them so much. They're praying according to the character of God. Your name, O oh Lord, who you are, do that, be that to them. So that's the first portion of this psalm, earnest prayer for the king. And then, I noted this before, the, the, the text shifts to a singular voice. And I think there's two possibilities of who the I in verse 6 is. Um, possibly it's some worship leader, Levitical leader, or, and I think probably more probable, but I, I couldn't be dogmatic, it's David himself, the king. Um, for the purposes of our outline, confident prayer of the king. But I, I can't be certain on that point. In fact, if you go back to Second Chronicles, you don't need to. A Levite stands up and assures the king of victory um, in that instance. But I, I think here it actually is David himself because he penned this and it fits. But here, here we have a confident prayer of the king. And it turns on the now, the temporal note. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed, and He will answer him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Note two things here. First, His assurance, His current assurance. Now I know. Now I know. By the way, also notice that the very first petition, in verse 1, may the Lord answer you. What is the I I'm suggesting is David here confident of? He will answer him. So here we have the answer prayed for in verse 1. It hasn't happened yet. The salvation itself is still future. The victory is still future. He will answer him. But he's so confident of what God will do, we can praise him for it now. Where does that confidence come from? Possibly the Spirit of God, even upon David himself, is giving him this confidence, but I think the psalm itself gives us two grounds for that at least. And they are because of their prayers in the Lord's name. 
because of their prayers in the Lord's name. In this original context, what's happened? The, the people are praying for David. David's hearing them pray. He's hearing God's people cry out to God according to his character. Crying out for help for his anointed. Because remember, David is the Lord's anointed. And anointed is the Hebrew Messiah, the Greek Christos. He is, he's the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed. He's not the Christ. David's greater son alone has that honor, but he is the Lord's anointed. And here are the people praying for him. And in that context, I believe he, he grants confidence from their prayers. Our prayers are effective. We, we serve a sovereign God, but do not let confidence in God's sovereignty shrink your prayer life. The Apostle Paul makes an amazing statement in Philippians 1.19. He's in jail. He's writing to the Philippians about how he's in jail, and yet he's not worried that that's going to be a detriment to his ministry. And he says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so I think David grabs, grabs some confidence knowing the God he serves is a God who listens to intercession. In fact, the very context where God reveals that long form of his name in Exodus 34 is in the very context where Moses himself is successfully interceding for the people of Israel. So David knows this about God's character. He's a God who listens to intercession. The people of Israel are praying for him. He himself is the Lord's anointed. And the very character and nature of God is one who saves. He's a savior by heart. And I think David puts those things together and he is confident in the Lord's answer. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed and will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. So because of their prayers in the Lord's name, saving might from heaven comes for his Messiah. Now they prayed for help to come from the earthly location of God's presence. But here, it's expanded. It's not help from the sanctuary or help from Zion. It's help from heaven itself. More than they asked for is happening, in other words. God is helping from heaven. And that phrase, his strong right arm, turn, turn to Exodus 15. I, I think Exodus 15 may well be in the mind of David. And of course, this is the, the triumph of Israel as they escape and the Egyptian army is destroyed. This is the, the great saving act in Israel's history that they look back to. We look back to the cross, but before the cross, Israel looked back again and again and again to the Exodus. And there's some language, I think, drawn up here um, that, that makes some links. This may well be in David's mind. Exodus 15, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song of the Lord. And look at verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 12. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Because a little later in Psalm 20, we're going to talk with people who trust in chariots. And so in Exodus 15, the strong, saving hand of the Lord destroys a mighty army of chariots. This, of course, is the great saving event of the Old Testament. And so this reference to God's strong right hand 
his saving might of his right hand. It's God's power. David doesn't know how, but the Lord will answer, and saving might, potentially akin to the crossing of the Red Sea, will come for him. And he is confident of this. He is confident of this. Saving might from heaven comes for his Messiah. Which then brings him to his singular confidence. His current assurance, now his singular confidence. And here, the singular voice, I think it's David, incorporates the people again as well, giving us sort of the moral of this psalm in some sense. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. On David's day, horses and chariots were the tanks and the fighter jets. Constantly, the Philistines would, would possess these types of weapons, and those who had them on open fields had a great military advantage. And some trust in them indeed. They trust in the name of their God. And the Exodus account demonstrates why that is a sound trust. It doesn't matter how much, how great, how mighty your army is. The Lord God's strong right hand can save and can shatter and destroy. And so we get some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's this, the third time the name of the Lord shows up here. You're starting to get the point. Trusting in God and in His name and His character in the day of trouble, not trusting in other things. And this, of course, is the challenge for us when we're afraid, when we're in our day of trouble. We want to trust in elections, maybe trust in a vaccine, Trust in Supreme Court justices. Trust in your savings account, your retirement fund. None of those things are wrong. I mean, don't get me wrong. Israel's, the soldiers in Israel are going to pick up spears. They're going to go to battle. There are only a few instances where the Lord fights the entire battle for them. Jericho and other places. But there, there's going to be those things. But that's not what they're putting their trust in. They're not going to trust in the weapons of their war. They're not going to trust in the power of their own hands. They're trusting in the name of the Lord God. That's the challenge when we're faced with calamity and trial. That our, that our focus would be singular and not divided. That, that's the example for us. Um, there are so many other things vying for our allegiance as that which will save. And we get the ethic here now. They collapse and fall, those who trust in horses and chariots, but we rise and stand upright. We rise and stand upright. So here's, here's the ethic. Do not trust in that which cannot save. Do not trust in that which cannot save. Um, Isaiah warns of this very thing. Let's know Isaiah 31, 1 to 3. And, and Israel's kings would be guilty of this. And for us, we can do this in different ways as well. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horses because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back His words. He will arise against the house of the evildoer and against the helpers of him who works iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, 
and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. So they're praying for David. They, they pray rightly. They pray according to God's character. And David, seeing this, knowing God's character, knowing how he responds to prayer, he's confident. And then this solidifies their hope. Again, don't let your confidence waver in anything else. We, we want this to be our confession as well. We live in a tumultuous time. Um, there are many things to be afraid of in this world right now. And we want to make this our confession as well, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That phrase also reminds me of, of David's first great triumph. Remember when he comes up against the Philistine, Goliath? Um, in First Samuel 17.45, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword with a spear, and with a javelin, javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. It's the same, same picture. You've got the military advantage. You've got the height and the strength and the weight and the weapons. But I come to you in the name of the Lord God. So David set an example in that first encounter of this very trust and confidence, and perhaps even remembering how God had delivered him, gave him more confidence even now as well. Do not trust in that which cannot save. Trust in the name of the Lord and rise and stand upright. Also notice there's, there's no false understanding that simply by trusting in God, they'd be invincible. People who never lose don't need to rise, do they? What, what David is confident is there will be no ultimate defeat. There will be no final defeat. They, they may fall down. They may get knocked down. They will rise. They will stand firm. They will rise and stand upright. Which brings us then to verse 9. To the summary prayer to the king. Summary prayer to the king. Now here, I take slight issue with the ESV's translation of verse 9. I prefer the New American Standards and the New King James. Um, the ESV has it this way. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. I think a better reading would be, O Lord, save. May the king answer when we call. Or the king, may he answer us when we call. And I think that distinction's subtle, but instructive. I think they're calling the Lord God their king. O Lord, so I, in my outline here, you have, O Lord, save. May the king answer us. I, I think that's the final petition. I think the New American Standard, New King James, have it right there. And if I'm right, if they're right, then they're seeing past David as their king to the Lord God as their true king. It's also interesting that, O Lord, save. This is, does anyone know what that translates to? It's Hosanna. It's the very thing they prayed for over Jesus in the triumphal entry in John 12. O Lord, save. Hosanna. This is their summary of everything. Oh Lord, deliver us, save us, help us. And may the king answer us. Because they're seeing David as king, as God's regent, as God's representative. But the Bible's clear that ultimately it's the Lord God himself who's king. And this is made clear when the people cry out for a king. Remember Samuel is dismayed when the people want a king? And the Lord says to him in 1 Samuel 8, 7, 
Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. David is king only insofar as the Lord has set him in place. The Lord God Himself is their king. And so they pray past their earthly leader to the Lord God Himself, summarizing the simple prayer, O Lord, save. The Lord God, therefore, may the king answer us, the Lord God is our one true king. I think of Paul's title in 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. The king of the ages. There's also another subtlety of the Hebrew text that the ESV doesn't bring out. The phrase, when we call, is literally translated, in the day of our calling, which makes this notion of a day Cap the psalm. It begins, may the Lord answer you in the day of your calling, in the day of trouble. And it ends, may the king answer us in the day of our calling. In the day of our calling. They they cry out to God. Notice something else. Even with the, the middle section's confidence, who I'm suggesting is David, even with the great confidence that God will answer, doesn't stop them from praying out yet again. You can be confident that God will do something and still pray that He does it. It's not as though the confident assertion of verse 6 brings the matter to an end. They're still praying, O Lord, save! May the King answer us when we call. That's a good way to pray. So we have before us the example of David and Israel in a day of trouble, facing great danger, needing help, and they, they, they draw their focus. At other times in Israel's history, they'll send down to Egypt, but here they gather together for a prayer meeting, for a worship service, and the people cry out. They make their petitions to God. And they know what their need is. They know where the source of their help needs to come from. They're aware of what could hinder that. And they pray for victory. And then one stands up among them, and expresses his overwhelming confidence in light of what has just happened. Now I know the Lord saves his anointed, that God will deliver and save them. And, and then reiterates the people's singular focus that their trust is in God and not in the things of man. And then they cry out for God to save. So that serves as a model of prayer for us, how we ought to pray. But it also, I think, speaks of Christ as well. And I want to take a few moments to consider that as well. David's greater son is the Lord's anointed. So let's consider this. Did the Lord save His anointed? Yes, He did not let Him decay. After He died on the cross for our sins, He was raised by the power of God. Did the Lord remember His sacrifice? Yes, He did. His sacrifices, remember, not a sacrifice for his own sins, but for ours. But I'll make one other point that I find striking. There is a battle yet future for our risen, reigning Messiah. Do our prayers have any function in its outcome? Turn turn to Revelation chapter 8. Turn to Revelation chapter 8. Yes, they do. Even when a matter is sure and certain, even when Scripture spells it out in detail, 
These are things we can and should be praying for. There's a great battle that our Messianic King will fight and He will triumph. Strength will come from God's saving right hand. And yet, look at how the program of this final conflagration plays out. Chapter 8, verse 3, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel take, took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. So he takes the prayers of the saints, turns it into a form of judgment, and cast it upon the earth. And that's what sets up the plagues and the judgments that happen that ultimately end in the return of Christ Himself. Our prayers play a role even in the final conflict of our Messianic King's return. His, his triumph will happen with and in concord our prayers. And so as we await that day, our closing song looks to that. I'll just read the closing words of the book of Revelation. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May God's Word encourage us, strengthen us. May we learn to pray this way.